This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. And welcome to the first episode of 2024. It's hard to believe, but we are embarking upon our fifth season here at Bird Hugger. It's a new year, and we plan to bring you all the latest and best information when it comes to native plants and the natural history of birds. Today, we have a special guest to talk to us about what happens when an oil spill occurs and birds are affected. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. What happens when an oil spill occurs and birds are covered in oil? Since 1976, Tri-State Bird Rescue in Newark, Delaware, has been sending its teams of highly trained specialists to the scenes of oil spills all over the world. Oiled wildlife care is a complex process, and today we have with us Daniel Wilson, wildlife ecologist and operations specialist, to explain how it all works. Okay, and now I'd like to welcome Daniel Wilson to the show. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I asked you to come on the show because my feeling is that your average birder or bird aficionado probably has very little idea of what actually goes into oil spill response. So could you start by maybe telling us about Tri-State, the organization, how it got started and what it does? Yeah, so we got our start back in the 70s, 76, I think. Our founder, Lynn Frank, she responded to the Olympic Games tanker spill out here on the East Coast, and she was trying to help the oiled animals, specifically birds, that were impacted by that oil spill. And over the years, her efforts became known in the community, and her rehabilitation operation grew to the point where we needed a facility. And at that point, we decided to acquire and renovate a barn over in uh, White Clay Creek by the Middle Run Trail. And that became our base of operations for rehabilitation. And we continued to do oil spill response out of that building. It wasn't ideal. We were working out of the basement. So we're talking like French drains and retrofitted horse stalls on either side of the hallway that we use for various purposes. And that's kind of how we did our operations for a while. And then in 2015, I think, we opened our L. Leon Campbell and Alice P. Campbell Wildlife Response Building. We call it the Campbell Building. And that is on the same property as the Frank Center for Wildlife, our rehabilitation building. And that is a state-of-the-art oil spill response building. It has a whole bunch of features that make it good for other 
biosecurity or events that we might need to use it for outside of oil spills. Fortunately, we haven't had to use it for any of those purposes, but it can function for that. And that's kind of where we are at today. We are one organization. But we have two separate departments. So we have our wild bird clinic that treats orphaned and injured native wild birds year round. And then we have our oil spill side that does oil spill response as well as a whole host of other things related to the oil spill response industry. That is great. And for our listeners now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and how you came to work at Tri-State? Yeah, sure. So I... Had a pretty normal average life and ended up going back to college later in life. My professors like to refer to me as a non-traditional student. I started out at Dell Tech to get some of the general stuff out of the way. And that is where I got introduced to Tri-State. I was in one of the clubs and the club did a field trip to Tri-State's clinic. And this is prior to our Campbell building being opened. And I found out that there was intern opportunities with the organization. So I put it in an application to, to intern that summer, and I was brought on as a volunteer intern, and I loved it. It was a great organization. The people were great. I loved the work. So I returned the next summer as a senior intern, and then I returned another summer, this time as a, I guess, seasonal employee kind of thing. And eventually I graduated and did what I think most people do, which is chase the highest paying job you can get and found that search unfulfilling, unsatisfying. So I reached back out to Tri-State to see if they had any openings. And they had two. They had one in their clinic, and they had one in the oil spell response side. I applied for both and got rejected for both. However, another opening on the oil team opened up shortly after I had originally interviewed for the original opening. And they reached right out to me. They said, you know, hey, are you still interested in a position here? And I said, absolutely. Um, and that was back in early 2020. And uh, and yeah, I've been with Tri-State since uh, June of 2020. That is great. So now, could you tell us what is the process involved in oil spill response? The name Tri-State is well known among all wildlife rehabilitators everywhere because you guys are willing to show up, tent up, and just do your thing just about yeah. anywhere. So could you tell our listeners what is involved in when you guys respond to a plea for help from a particular region during an oil spill? And so usually what happens is we'll get a call. We would prefer to get those calls early in a response before wildlife has been affected because, you know, maybe we can get involved and do some things to prevent them from being affected at all. However, normally we get the call after somebody has seen an oiled animal and that call can come from a variety of people. It can come from state agency, federal agency. It can come from, we speak an acronym in oil spill response. So we would get a call from the RP or the responsible party. That is the individual or the organization that has spilled whatever product has spilled. Or sometimes we can get a call from the member of the public. So when we get that call, if there is a response already happening, you know, the the response structure, the incident command structure, which is what we use in this country, the hierarchy for a response. If that's already established, we'll contact command for that and hopefully get contracted in. We do not self-deploy, so we cannot respond to an oil spill unless we have been contracted by either the RP or an oil spill response organization or OSRO, which would be the organization contracted by the RP to clean up. 
And then depending on the needs of the response, our actions will vary. They may need us out there to do surveys, which is just on foot or on a vehicle or on a boat surveying for wildlife. We want to know if there's any oiled animals out there, or even if we're seeing animals that are not oiled, we want to know what's in the area so we can advise the response, inform future decisions. Do we want to implement things to chase away these clean animals or maybe attract them to another location so they don't become oiled? And then frequently, those surveys turn into capture. So if we spot an oiled animal and it's one that we can capture, we'll pursue it and do so. And then once we have oiled animals in hand, we transport them back to a primary care facility. If we are within a six-hour driving radius of our Campbell building, we will operate out of our Campbell building. If it's beyond that, we have to stand up a remote facility, which is a whole other can of worms to get involved with. Now that I've mentioned that, Tri-State is a bit misleading as far as the name goes. It's a little more accurate when it comes to our clinic, but for oil spill response, we respond pretty much east of the Mississippi into eastern Canada, down into the Caribbean. We're also part of a organization called Gowers, or Global Oil Wildlife Response System, and we could potentially respond internationally. But once we have animals in hand, we will go through an admit process, a stabilization process, and then we decontaminate. And then after they're decontaminated, we will rehabilitate. So usually they need some kind of post-wash, pre-release care. We want to make sure that they are going to be waterproof. We want to make sure that they're going to be flighted properly, that they are, um, if not gaining weight, at the very least, not losing weight. We want to make sure that they're capable of flight and doing all the things that animals are supposed to do naturally in the wild. And once we're comfortable that they're going to be able to return to the wild and live a normal life like they had never been impacted by the oil spill. And we ideally release them back to where we found them. Frequently, the spill location is not clean by the time we are ready to release. So sometimes we have to find alternative release locations. But that is a very cliff notes version of oil spill response. I've seen the process working. It is extremely complex. Could you maybe walk our listeners through, let's say there's an oiled seagull. Could you walk us through the process of what he would go through getting cleaned up? Yeah, sure. So we have a reception area in our building that we keep all of our patients prior to an admit. From that reception area, they will move into our admit space where they get a full medical admit. So we're we're not only looking for how deep has the oil penetrated? Is it what we call wet to skin? So has the oil pen, like saturated the feathers and just penetrated all the way to the skin? Is it is it just on the surface or somewhere in between? We're evaluating uh, what percentage of the body is covered, and we're also looking for secondary problems. You know, is there, are there lesions? Is there a fracture? You know, uh, frequently we see eye irritation, which is something we just we treat for on every patient. But once we've done our medical exam, we're also collecting evidence. So oil spill response may involve some degree of litigation. So we're collecting feather samples for evidence. We are collecting swab samples. So we'll take like a gauze or a cotton ball and rub it usually on the the leg of the animal or if the leg's not contaminated, some part of the, the animal that is contaminated. And we set that aside in our evidence freezer until we're told we're allowed to dispose of it. 
And then we're also doing uh, stabilizing treatments. So all of our patients are going to get fluid therapy. We want to make sure they're well hydrated. As I said before, we're going we're gonna to treat their eyes. So we're going to rinse them with saline and we're going to give them some lubricating eye drops. We're also going to give some GI treatments. So we're going to give them a medication that kind of coats the GI tract. So animals, especially birds, when they're contaminated, they, they don't want to be contaminated. They want to clean themselves. So they'll preen or try to clean themselves. And in doing so, they're ingesting the contaminant. So we want to make sure that their insides are protected from that. In addition to collecting evidence samples, we'll also pull some feathers for what we call a feather test. And then once the animal has been stabilized, we will put them in housing on our rehabilitation floor. And that's where they'll hang out for usually 24 to 48 hours. That varies depending on the contaminant. If we're dealing with something like diesel that is acutely toxic and very harsh on the skin, we might accelerate that a little bit. But generally, a day or two to stabilize. We want to make sure they're eating and drinking. And then in the intervening time, we'll take that feather sample that we pulled during the admit, and we will set up a series of smaller scale mock washes. So we'll take little 12 ounce deli cups and we set out our dilutions. So we'll use uh, our surfactant and we'll set up basically a mini wash with a single feather and we'll test different percentages of dilution for the surfactant. We'll also test different numbers of tubs. And there's there's a little bit of science in this, but there's also a little bit of art, right? There's different products can have so many different characteristics and how long it's been on the patient, the weather conditions that the patient has been exposed to while it's been contaminated. All of this can alter how we're going to try to remove this product. We also have a series of pretreatments that we may try. So for particularly difficult contaminants, we may want to try products that the patient will be exposed to for a limited amount of time to help loosen that up. So that when we get into our wash tubs, we can get it off effectively with the surfactant. And we do that as many times as we need to. Sometimes it's three, four, five tests before we get something we're happy with. It could be a dozen, dozen and a half tests before we get to where we want to be. With the ultimate goal being to put the patient through a wash with the lowest concentrations of surfactant possible in the fewest amount of tubs possible. The whole wash process is super stressful. And, you know, they've they've already been oiled. And then, we, you know, we're chasing them in the wild to capture them. And then we're putting them in a box and we're transporting them, poking and prodding them during admit. And just they've been through so much at this point. We want to get through that process as quickly as we can. Um, and then, you know, once we're happy with a, a wash protocol, we will we'll grab our patient and we will set up our wash tubs to, to mirror the, the protocol that we were happy with. And we'll put it we'll put them through that wash process. And it's typically a three person process. So somebody's holding the patient. Somebody is washing the body of the patient. And the third person is washing the head and usually like the neck area, maybe the upper chest. Uh, that person is also super important. Because they're monitoring the condition of the patient. Sometimes we'll do a wash and we'll get a tub or two in and the patient will start to panic or even worse, they might start to what we call crashing. And at that point, we might just skip the rest of the wash and jump them straight to the rinse and then maybe try a second wash later. Or sometimes, you know, we'll just pull them out completely. But we get through the whole the whole wash process and then we move to the rinse. The rinse process 
typically takes as long as the wash process. So a wash process, we've reduced our times recently. So I'll say average time is probably 12 to 15 minutes for a wash. And the rinse can be 15 minutes to a half hour. And what we're doing at this point is we have removed all of the contaminant and we are rinsing off residual surfactant. And for a lot of our team members, the rinse process is the most satisfying part of the process, especially if we're doing waterfowl, because you very quickly, once the, the surfactant is being washed off, you can see the feathers fluff up and regain their structure and start to be water repellent. The water starts to beat on the feathers. And it's just it's it's a very satisfying process to be a part of and to witness. And that's what we're looking for. There's a common misconception that natural oils and not that birds have a gland that they can use oil in when they're preening. But that's not actually what is responsible for the waterproofing. It's the structure of the feather itself and the contaminants disrupt that structure. So when we're rinsing them, that that structure reforms. And, uh, and once they're done the rinse process, we move them over into a drying room. And the drying room is a room that we keep fairly warm. We usually use a combination of like a pet grooming blower and a brooder. So like a, a large ceramic heat emitter. And they hang out in the drying room until they're dry. And what we want to see at this point is ideally the patients start to preen because if they're preening, number one, they're going to dry quicker, which is what we want. We want to get them out of that scenario where they have hot air being blown at them and it's noisy. But the, the preening also helps restore the feather structure. So not only will they dry quicker, but they will be better ready for release more quickly if they're actively preening. And playing with the temperatures, kind of how we can get there. If the, if the temperature is too high or too low, they may just hunker down and not preen. And if, they, if the temperature is in the right range, they'll stand. A lot of times they will stand in front of the blower and actively preen. And then once they are dry, we will move them back out to the rehabilitation floor in a separate area. We have uh, the rehabilitation floor is, is large and we can reconfigure it as we need to. But we isolate clean and oiled patients both in space and time. And that's where they hang out generally until they're ready for release. If our clinic has space, we will a lot of times transfer our patients from our Campbell building over to the clinic. To finish the rehabilitation because in our Campbell building we have we use modular housing which is constructed from PVC marine grade vinyl and like a shade cloth that we get from like a, a garden store it's adequate it will do the job our number one patient is a Canada goose and a Canada goose can absolutely go through its entire pre-release conditioning in that area it's better if we can move them over to the clinic where they'll also have access to a pool where they can swim regularly rather than us having to remove them from the pen several times a day and put them in a pool to swim and then move them back. It's just less handling, less human interaction if we can manage that. And then from there, yeah, a lot of times we will tag them with fish and wildlife bands. We will do a final blood test. A lot of times we draw blood at the beginning of a response during the admit. And if everything checks out, we release them back to where we found them. It's a monumental effort. It just sounds so mind-boggling when I think of the processes involved to get the birds back to a healthy state. And that's just on-site. Could you talk for a yeah. minute about remote? You know, when you're called to a remote location, you have to somehow find buildings, 
work with a community that's there that wants to help volunteer. You've got to somehow find a way to pump in fresh water and then a way to dispose of fouled water once the toxins are in the water. Could you Mm -hmm. touch on that just a bit? Yeah, so the process is very similar. The challenge to responding remotely is we're not going to find a facility that is going to have all of the things we are looking for already present. So a lot of times it results in retrofitting. Fortunately for us, because we are contracted with the responsible party or the Osro doing the cleanup, we can go to them. And how we go about it depends on the response structure and to what degree they're utilizing the ICS structure. But we basically say like, hey, this building has this and this and this feature, but it's missing these other features. This is the building we want to use. We need you to make this building meet these specifications. And the response will do that. We had a a response last year, early last year, and the responsible party had a contractor come in and we had a garage that we wanted to use. It didn't have reliable on-demand hot water, which is something we need. Not only did it not have the hot water, but it didn't have the volume that we needed. It didn't have any way to heat the building. This is March in the Midwest, so it's not terribly warm. It didn't have any kind of ventilation, right? Because we're working with a product that is volatile. It's putting off fumes. We don't want to be impacted by that. Human safety always comes first, but we also don't want our patients to be impacted by that. So it needed ventilation. We also didn't have adequate outlets. We needed to add other outlets. And we wanted those outlets hanging. And the reason we wanted them hanging is because it eliminates the slips, trips, and fall hazards that are pretty much present in every response. So the responsible party brought in a contractor and I handed him our facility requirements document and they retrofitted this entire garage in just about 24 hours and tens of thousands of dollars and just an astronomical amount of work to do in 24 hours. I would say setting up a remote facility, that's probably pretty close to the worst case scenario for us is where we go to a facility that really doesn't have what we need. and We need to retrofit the entire building. What we try to do to mitigate that scenario is pre-identify facilities when we can. So we have a, a contract with the state of Maine, and they have a very well-organized, well-thought-out oil spill response plan, and they've helped us to pre-identify facilities. So some of the pre-identified facilities we have in Maine are National Guard armories. They're secure. Frequently, we can use a garage bay there, and the garage bays have a drain that will go into an oily wastewater separator. So it negates the need to figure out what we're going to do with all this oily water. They have usually sufficient power. Water supply is usually not a problem. If we're fortunate enough to respond, say, in South Carolina, we have an organization down there that they have set up their own oil spill response area. They have a washroom. They have a separate medical admin space that is separate from their their regular rehab operations. And they have a large open floor space that is normally used for like presentations or educational trainings and whatnot. But when we have a response, if we need to use their building, they can clear out that entire floor and let us use it for our operations. So that's a more ideal scenario than going somewhere where the, the building just doesn't have anything set up. And I would say that probably the biggest complication is, the, as you mentioned earlier, the, the oily wastewater disposal. So the Midwest response that I referred to, 
we had to do all of our washing inside a berm. So basically just a, a big container. We had our wash tables and our tubs and everything within the, the sperm. And we had to pump it out with just a small sump pump that you might get at Lowe's. And we had to pump it probably 50, 50 to 100 feet into a very large oily wastewater container that the responsible party provided for us. We kind of had to have that pump running nonstop because in addition to our oily wastewater going there during washes, we're also swimming patients. They're waterfowl. They need, they need time on the water. And in order to prevent the tank that we're using for uh, swimming them from recontaminating them because they're defecating in there and then food and other oils might settle on the surface. We need to have constant water flow and a constant overflow, which is then spilling over into the berm, which then needs to be pumped out. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water and we're just, we're having that pump going all the time. And that's what a remote response looks like. And volunteers, you mentioned volunteers. We actually don't use local volunteers. And the reason we don't is because there's a lot of training and expertise that's involved that we just, we cannot impart to local volunteers in an amount of time that would be appropriate to get them helping us with a response. And to do that training takes resources away from all of the care that the patients need. The major response or training that we look for is what's called HAZWOPER, and it's hazardous waste operations. I think that's what the acronym is for. And the minimum to work on most responses, and this is dictated by the responsible party, not necessarily by Tri-State, is a 24-hour training. So it's difficult to come across just the average citizen who already has that training. So if we need extra staff, we have a network of volunteers that typically work with our clinic, but they're also, they do regular trainings with us on the oil spill response side. So they can respond with us both locally and, you know, if they're available, they can travel with us. They maintain the 24 hour Haswopper plus all the trainings we provide. And then we've recently been expanding that network from our volunteers with Tri-State to aquarium and zoo professionals. And the reason we, we looked at that industry to kind of beef up our, our response forces because they have regular everyday experience working with and around wild animals. They're wild animals in captivity, but they're still wild animals. They have regular handling experience. A lot of them come with medical knowledge or medical training. So if we need, we need to assign somebody to gavage 200 geese, we can pull from those people who have that experience that know how to properly, safely garage a bird and assign them to that task while tri-state staff maybe takes care of something that's a little more oil spill response specific that they wouldn't have the expertise for. Uh, and they have been phenomenally helpful in us responding recently. And the organizations that we pull from have been so helpful and accommodating by letting their employees work for us and even letting them travel with us. Like we have responded where we're gone for, you know, two weeks or so, and they leave their regular job there. Their organization lets them leave their regular job to come, to come work with us for that time. And that's a period where that organization is, is short staffed. So we really couldn't do it without all of the help that we get from our volunteers and our paraprofessionals. 
Well, I think it's just utterly amazing the work you guys are doing. It's fantastic. So as we wrap up here, what could you say to someone who maybe is kayaking on a lake and sees an oil spill in the water or is standing at the edge of the ocean and sees an oil spill? What is the best thing to do? I would say call first and foremost, if you're sure it's oil, call the National Response Center. I believe that's the Coast Guard that mans that phone number. You you can Google NRC and it will bring up a 1-800 number and you can call them and report it. They're going to ask you a whole bunch of information about it. But that is the first and probably best step you can do in an oil spill response if you're the first person to notice it, because they will get the information out to all of the other parties that need to be involved and they'll investigate. And if it is an actual oil spill, they can get the response up and going. And anywhere at the coast or navigable waters, Coast Guard is going to be heading up the response. If it's an inland spill, it's probably going to be EPA, but the NRC will be able to get that notification out. You can also follow up with your your state agency. So every state's going to have its version of, uh, of the EPA, and it may be called the EPA. It may be Department of Natural Resources, something along those lines. You can let them know they're going to be involved in the response as well. And if you see impacted wildlife, you can call state agency. You can call us directly. You know, like I stated earlier, sometimes we get alerted to responses by members of the public and, and nothing has been going on. And then we have to call the NRC. I would say absolutely do not try to do any cleanup yourself. If it's an oil spill, these chemicals are going to be toxic to people. You don't want to be exposed to them. You don't want to get them on your skin. You don't want to be breathing in those fumes. Alert the appropriate agencies or organizations. And yeah, that's that's probably the best thing you can do. Well, Daniel, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. We wish you all the best with your work you're doing. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Daniel Wilson for joining us today. You can find out more about Tri-State Bird Rescue by going to their website at tristatebird.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.